0: This show is pre-recorded and furnished by Media Airtime LLC and Matt Mattern. You're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. I've got Daniel Knowles, Midwest correspondent for The Economist and author of Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and what to do about it. Welcome to the show, Daniel.
1: Thank you for having me on that. Looking forward to it. Daniel,
0: tell us a bit about your journey to writing this book. What brought you to the point where you felt compelled to write it?
1: So I think this book kind of began in my head maybe five or six years ago when I was uh, I was living and working in Nairobi in Kenya at the time. Um, the Economist, one of the Africa correspondents. And, and it was the first time in my life that I'd really been dependent on a car to get around i had this kind of old mitsubishi and spent my entire kind of life living around traffic jams working around traffic jams um dealing you know with cars parking um having to drive all the time in a place where actually the majority of people can't afford to have a car and but the city that you know it has ever more roads being built and and new expressways and uh, bypasses designed to kind of get people around in their cars and yet the traffic stays pretty much as bad um however much they keep building the cars go up and it seemed to me an incredibly kind of dysfunctional way for a city to work and after that I lived in Mumbai um and then I moved back to London and and it was around then when the pandemic hit that I kind of began began working on this thing. I got back to London and living on my bike, I'd realised how much I appreciated being able to get around without a vehicle. Um and began thinking, you know, a lot about sort of uh the, kind of the way in which cars and reliance on cars and making cars a kind of primary means of transport creates all of these other problems, and climate change is one of the most urgent ones. But there's an awful lot of other things about how they affect the way we live our lives that I just think is quite negative <laughs> overall. Uh, and so, so that's sort of the where the book is, and it it, it comes out um, early next year. Um, it's it's now written and finished, so it's been it's been a great fun to kind of work on it.
0: Well, you know, it's fascinating. I mean, uh, maybe we'll go down both paths in terms of uh, the emissions issues related to cars, but also the quality of life issues that are related to uh, having a car-based society. Um, So uh, how big of a deal are cars in relationship to the whole problem of global warming?
1: Well, it sort of depends how you measure it. I mean, by pretty much any measure, a lot, you know, so so transport makes up something like a quarter of CO2 emissions um, in the US. And I think it's kind of similar globally and a, a very large share of that is is vehicles. And it's the only share that in rich countries um, has been growing uh kind of continuously you know we most rich countries have sort of managed quite successfully to reduce the intensity of um carbon emissions from industry and from um electricity generation that sort of thing but we're we're burning ever more gasoline uh in our vehicles and, and that's producing more co2 so so it's a good chunk kind of directly and then on top of that you have the way in which kind of cars and car dependent living sort of forces to live so when you have you know very sprawling car-centric sort of cities places like houston uh, or los angeles where you are um people live further apart they have to go further distances to get everywhere so they're going further they also tend to you know have homes that are less energy efficient for you know bigger homes that are that are less well insulated um so be more heating so it kind of indirectly causes an awful lot more emissions too i mean you can see if you look at the average new yorker they consume they produce something like have uh, 60% less CO2 overall per head than you know than, than the average American overall, and some of that is just directly that they're driving less. But an awful lot of it is stuff that's only possible because they're driving less because they live in a more dense kind of urban environment. So, um, so sort of yeah, directly quite a lot, and then indirectly, it's really you know the vast majority of carbon emissions in a way. <laughs> well, it's fascinating that uh, those two problems are
0: intertwined so much. How does reliance on vehicles add more to carbon emissions than, say, taking mass transit?
1: Well, it's just uh, you know you're moving a lot more around, so you need to use a lot more energy. You know, um, so that that's the first thing. You have you know a, a car is maybe you know three or four thousand pounds of weight um, that that takes a lot of energy to move it, and right now we're getting that energy from from um, well burning gasoline, um, and you're moving you know. Seven, 10 or 20 pounds of metal or something for every pound of passenger so so whereas you know a train or a bus is sort of uh, full of passengers um, so you know moves a lot more people per vehicle um, so you know so just straightforwardly cars not, less efficient at moving people than mass transit um the other thing is that you know when we have kind of when everybody's got their own car you need a lot more land used for parking for road space people are going further distances everywhere's further apart so the distances are also a lot longer people are traveling further in more kind of polluting vehicles so it's sort of when you have these. Cities like most American cities, where kind of everybody or you know the vast majority of people have their own private vehicle to get around, it's a very energy-intensive way of living, um, and the bulk of that energy comes from, you know, from fossil fuels.
0: So, in terms of take a, a city like Chicago, where you're living and mm-hmm. where I happen to be currently, and where I grew up, it has a fairly robust public transit system but most people don't actually use it. How do you deal with that situation in order to take advantage of the public transportation that's in place so you get more people out of their cars?
1: Well, right. So Chicago is probably one of the, the better cities in the US. Um, you know, Certainly the kind of top top three or four in terms of the ability to live without a car. And and I live without a car here. And you can see there was actually a study published recently by the University of California looking at kind of um, emissions in in urban and suburban areas across the US. And you see that the average Chicagoan emits an awful lot less CO2 than than people elsewhere, Um, you know, because um, even though a majority of Chicagoans do drive, um, they drive a lot less distance than most Americans and 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 there are you know about quarter of the population who don't drive and and i kind of think chicago has a you know it really it's a place where you don't need to drive maybe occasionally but that um it, it it you know in a way it offers a chance to to really improve things i mean the the, the public transport system here the bones of it are actually very good it, it doesn't run as well as it should especially at the moment i think because of kind of staff shortages after the pandemic. But um, when you have a city like like Chicago, which is the kind of dense central core in which a lot of people work in the same place, um, you know, and have to get there by public transport because you simply couldn't have everybody drive into the loop um, each day. There's just not enough land for all those cars. Um, it's quite efficient. Um, the problem is that, you know, the city of Chicago is still, even though it's one of the more affordable big cities in America, it's still, Quite an expensive place to live, and you know, and and it sprawls out into the, the the into the suburbs, and and in the suburbs you really do need a car because public transport, you know, it's not an alternative in any kind of realistic way, um, uh, except you know perhaps commuter train lines, and and and. American cities in general have sprawled out so much in the last kind of 60, 70 years that that it's become very difficult for people to live without cars at all. And, and with that, the sort of amount of energy everybody's using has just shot up. Um, so, you oh. know, in an American context, what you want are cities to look more like Chicago and you want Chicago perhaps to look more like New York and New York perhaps to look more like Tokyo even. Um, you know, if you want to kind of reduce the amount of Energy that everybody's using, and the the, and still have good lives. That's the kind of key thing I think. You know, people want to live in these cities, so it's not that it's a sort of immiseration of everybody. It's just a more efficient way of living. So, in
0: terms of uh, Chicago or any other big cities, the thought is, how do we incentivize people to use the public transport system more? Do you make it free? I mean to uh to make more
1: people want to ride it i mean that's a good question um you know i think that the the more and more places are kind of experimenting with making public transport free and i think one of the the difficulties with it is that while it's you know it's quite effective at getting people particularly poorest people to use it more what what it doesn't seem to happen very much when you make public transport free is um People switch is switch, switching from driving to using it because it still tends to be the case in most cities in in this country that that public transport is slower and less convenient, comfortable, and less reliable than driving. And if you've got a car available, you'll probably still drive. Um, I think the big thing is basically is about land use, and you know you're, you're normally based in Los Angeles and. LA is beginning to do some really interesting things around you know building more housing near to the sort of great metro lines that you've had built there and you know reducing the amount of like parking that's required and uh, housing that's built there so that not everybody you know so that you don't have to build loads of parking so that not everybody living there transit line has a car Um, land use is basically the key thing and if you kind of use land differently you can make public transport a very efficient way of moving people around and when it's very efficient people will use it you know um, instead of driving as they do in New York and in you know even Chicago to a large extent, and certainly kind of cities around the world, you know, New York or Amsterdam or Tokyo or whatever, you know, kind of, if, if the city's built for sort of public transports convenient, people will use it. So that's probably I think, the, the main thing.
0: Well, that is the challenge in Los Angeles is to uh, break the zoning grip that the neighborhoods have had to block building larger apartment buildings by the transit lines. And uh, certainly, you know, Los Angeles as a whole would benefit if greater density was built along those lines. It's just challenging politically to do it. And it seems as though the, the uh, governor there is now putting some more pressure on the cities to, to actually go ahead and do that. And we'll see how that plays out. But uh, in the meantime, you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, and I'll be back uh, in just one minute with our guest, Daniel Knowles who is the Midwest correspondent for The Economist and also author of Carmageddon, how cars make life worse and what to do about it. to a climate change. This is Matt Matter. I've got Daniel Knowles, Midwest correspondent for The Economist and author of Carmageddon. How cars make life worse and what to do about it. Daniel, what amount of carbon emission is created by, say, building a internal combustion engine
1: car versus, say, an electric car? Is there a substantial difference in that? In the construction of the cars, Um, I mean, it's my understanding that that, you know, both the production of both cars is fairly intensive, but producing electric cars is actually more carbon intensive in terms of their production you know obviously not so much they're driving around um because of the amount of mining that is required you know for the the um minerals for the batteries uh particularly cobalt and for the book some of the reporting i did i went to um Colwesi, which is in the the southern part of the democratic Republic of Congo, where most of the world's world's cobalt um, is mined. So if you have an electric car, um, your battery, you know, certainly a chunk of it comes from Congo. And it's these kind of mines, you know, absolutely tearing up um, huge chunks of, of southern Congo. And it's incredibly carbon intensive, the amount of material that has to be extracted to make, you know, one kilogram of of cobalt is enormous um
0: stop there for a second and just talk about the political problems of that and that i understand that (laughs) the chinese and the russian governments and companies are uh in control of a large measure of that cobalt uh, mining in in the congo is that correct
1: uh it, it, it's sort of correct yeah it's broadly right there's there's several large firms there. there there's um several chinese firms um there's a big kazakh firm and there's there's also uh glencore which is a sort of anglo-swiss firm um all involved in mining there's also an awful lot of what they call artisanal mining which is kind of um basically um you know people themselves um in smaller groups digging out the are all kind of with, very primitive sort of pickaxes, shovels, and uh stuff. So um it is you know an awful lot of these metals go to China and a process there. So there's a geopolitical aspect to it. There's there's also a local kind of political aspect in Congo which is you know that 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 this industry kind of relies on and, and both feeds um an incredibly kind of kleptocratic um government that 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 takes you know and takes the revenues um and uses it to sort of stay in power and maintain this kind of terrible political system and uh, generally speaking big resource rushes that have uh kind of come to to Congo over the past century you know going back to the sort of rubber boom um which also had a lot to do with the automobile but also bicycles at the end of the the 19th century uh through to sort of the copper boom in the vietnam war and now this with cobalt have not always gone well for Congo. they've tended to kind of worsen its government and lead to the most sort of extractive vicious kind of governance um and uh yeah if we're going to produce electric cars we're going to need to kind of keep mining that ore out and, and, you know, there are new mines in places like Canada that are producing cobalt, but the bulk of it, the bulk of the world's known reserves are in Congo. And I do wonder how much you can kind of realistically expand that, um, you know, to, to re- in the scale that that we apparently want to, if we really want to replace, you know, almost every car on the roads with an electric one. I kind of think we just need to have fewer cars. So are
0: electric cars the solution to the problem of reducing carbon emissions? You kind of led up to, (laughs) you don't think so, but why don't we get some details on why you think that might not be the case?
1: Yeah, so I think electric cars are part of the solution. I think you you have to replace some cars. The cars that we have on the road will have to be electric in the future. Um, But if we just seek to replace kind of every car, on the road the amount of cars that we have with electric cars and not only the cars that we currently have but the cars that sort of you know if the world keeps going and the path it has been that all of the sort of new middle classes of the kind of fast-growing economies of the world will also want um we're going to need so many electric cars and so much electricity generation to power them that i just you know i'm not saying that it won't be possible eventually to do that but if we need to if we want to reduce carbon emissions as fast as it looks like we need to um you know to to really prevent global warming being catastrophic you know we we need to replace some cars with electric cars but we also need to just have fewer cars on the road and the ones that we have you know driving less far um uh it's because otherwise it's just it's not good it's not going to be plausible to replace you know we're talking something like 1.4 billion vehicles on the road with electric ones, um, to do that anywhere near quickly enough. So, um,
0: what are the downsides of replacing all of our internal combustion engines with electric battery powered vehicles?
1: Well, just apart from the, the first one, which i just said, which is that, you know, the, the difficulty of actually doing it because of the minerals and the, the cost, you know, I mean, electric cars are going to be expensive for a while. Um, the other Big one is power generation, um, which is uh, you know, we, we we will have to increase. Um, I'm not sure what the US. is, uh, the estimates for the UK are that we will need to generate roughly three times more electricity uh, by 2050 as we do today. Um, you know, people somebody who's driving, if you say, say, say you've got a Tesla, um, Tesla with a hundred kilowatt um hour battery, uh and you know when you're an average californian you've got two cars in your household you've got two teslas 200 kilowatts and you both drive them kind of 40 miles a day um just the average for us driver it's probably slightly less in california but um you're using pretty much as much electricity charging those cars as you are you know in your whole sort of life otherwise in your household consumption so it's this radical increase in the amount of electricity that we need to generate just at a time when we're trying to to move our electricity grids away from fossil fuels and onto you know, more sustainable forms of energy. So, so we're adding a lot of demand. Um, and then the other thing is that if we all kind of switch to electric cars, um, we still sort of maintain these like sprawling urban, you know, planning um, urban forms for our cities, which require everybody to travel these enormous distances, which require, you um, you know, which generate an awful lot of of, of um, carbon emissions, sort of indirectly through, you know, the amount of concrete that we're, we're, we're using, and the amount of energy used to heat and, and uh, cool houses, what they're separate, as opposed to sort of in, you know, dense apartment buildings, where they kind of cool and heat each other. Um, so, so it sort of adds to the unsustainability of the rest of our lives, too, which, 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 you know, and, and it's not that people people want to live in in dense cities where they can walk around it's not that we're going to be forcing lifestyle change here you know the cost of living in kind of dense cities the cost of housing shows how much people want that option but they mostly can't afford it because we just particularly in this country but even even in Europe kind of don't build enough places like that to to meet the demand we sort of force people to live in the sprawl and to own cars uh, even if they prefer not to Well,
0: that's very true. Uh, A number of questions raised by that. Uh, One, uh, from kind of the optimist standpoint of creating enough energy to power the electric cars, uh, couldn't we just put a whole lot more solar on people's homes and businesses? You look across the the cities and, and most people don't have solar arrays. If they did have solar arrays, We could capture a lot of that energy and power a lot of those vehicles. Um, Wouldn't that be a a partial solution to this? Or is that um, pie in the sky?
1: Uh, I, I'm quite optimistic about sort of energy production in, in you know in the longer run and and uh, you know I think solar is becoming cheaper and cheaper and offshore wind is also going very fast and and I think that we will be able to sort of decarbonize our um, electricity grids but but I'm just not sure that kind of driving should be as much as we need should be the priority as as we do that it's going to still take time to 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 kind of put in all of that capacity um, and we don't have a lot of time in terms of the climate um well
0: i guess i would push back on you there yeah. in terms of that you know from a timing standpoint it's not realistic that in the next seven to ten years we're going to readjust los angeles cal you know or chicago or any of the major cities and bring uh, millions of people back into the cities. And of course, that would take a lot of rebuild, you know, building new places and so on and so forth, which is fairly carbon intensive to build millions of new units. So um, what's what's your response to that?
1: Oh, you're, you're I mean, you're not wrong. I, you know, the stuff I'm advocating will also take time. And I think kind of any realistic kind of plan will have to have a, a bit of both. And there are cities in, you know, particularly in the US where you're really not going to sort of uh, um de-sprawl them quickly. Um, and so we will just have to generate lots more energy to power the cars that people are going to be using. But I think what I'm trying to make the argument in the book is that, you know, we we have been moving towards more and more sprawl um, sort of all over the world. You know, cities like like Los Angeles. Los Angeles is not the worst in American terms at all. It's actually relatively dense. Um, you know, looking if you, compared to someone like Houston um, or, or Dallas. You know, this is Los Angeles is a relatively sustainable way to live. Um, so, um, but uh, I, I think that you know, electric cars are clearly part of the solution. But I think they can't be the only part of the solution. We do need to begin working towards people driving. Driving less and, and and requiring cars less and and um, it's not only cars that we're adding to our electricity grid. Um, you know, we we also need heating. Well, uh, you've just thrown oh. another variable into the equation, <laughs> so, and we'll Exactly, about I mean, we're moving past the topic of my book here, but but you know, but do, do we think is is moving from transport is kind of powering our cars the priority? Powering more and more cars really the priority for the electric for the extra electric energy that we're going to be generating. We have lots of
0: choices and a lot of issues to face, a lot of problems. We're going to be uh, taking a break right now. We'll be right back with Daniel Knowles, Midwest Correspondent for The Economist. This is Matt Mattern. You're listening to A Climate Change. to a climate change this is matt Mattern, and i've got daniel knowles midwest correspondent for the economist and author of carmageddon how cars make life worse and what to do about it well uh daniel uh, one of my pet topics is hydrogen power i have a hydrogen powered car and uh what do hydrogen powered cars trucks buses trains how can they be used to lower our carbon emissions and are they as good as, or maybe better or worse choice than electric powered vehicles?
1: Ah, that's fascinating. I've, I've never actually met anybody with a hydrogen powered car. Um, I, you know, I mean, I, I think, um, well, they have less of the issues to do with, uh, with, with, with minerals for sure. Um, uh, my impression is that hydrogen powered cars are probably still quite a technology that's still really, you know, in its infancy compared to battery powered cars and maybe we'll see some great kind of innovations there. Um, I think the problem, you know, A with that is that I kind of stick to to my original point is that a car, however it's powered, including a hydrogen powered car, is going to be you know, quite an inefficient way of getting around compared to ma- to a sort of mass transit or to on your own bicycle or, or your own feet. Um, but um, I, the other thing is that you know some of the benefits of electric cars comes from the fact they don't rely on combustion or sort of exploding fuels, which does make electric motors very um, you know an awful lot more efficient as a way of sort of converting energy to um to power um uh, to, to sort of movement and and so i'm you know i i, I did not find i i guess a long way of saying in my reporting i did not find a great deal of um you know sort of uh optimism about uh uh the future of hydrogen powered vehicles that said i'm very interested in kind of hydrogen i'm more interested in hydrogen powered kind of aeroplanes and things because i think we're very far away from having the energy density and batteries that will be able to to fly um with with anything other than a sort of combustible fuel and, and maybe hydrogen is the solution to sort of getting rid of fossil fuels In you know it's extraordinarily um polluting flying uh you know most of what i do not pollute by not driving i make up for in the flights unfortunately um that i take so it's uh so yeah, that that's my response. I'm sorry, it's not, not a very good one. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to hear more about your your hydrogen powered car. You know,
0: it is it is a an emerging technology, and and some have said, well, it's probably best for trucks and buses and trains and maybe uh, planes, which are larger, where the batteries don't work as well. And you know, it's it's hard to say because there is a lot of mining that is done, as you pointed out, for for electric cars, it can be a problem. And if we're talking about building 1.4 billion new vehicles, then the mining concerns become even, you know, that much greater. And and whether or not there's even the mineral content to, to uh, build that many batteries is another thing. And disposing of that many batteries is yet another problem. So, uh, but turning to something else, what positive steps are being taken to reduce our carbon emissions and and how do you see that playing out in the future
1: so i think if you look kind of specifically at transport at vehicles around the world i don't think I'm, you know this book is not completely um original these days it uh, um you know you can see you know if you look at, at the us um and awful lot of cities are beginning to do things like um getting rid of um parking minimums um you know the the idea that we will always kind of widen roads as a sort of solution to to traffic is is um going away i think new york may eventually it seems finally get a congestion charge so um, that all kind of begins to shift the incentives away because the thing about cars is that right now they are effectively very heavily subsidized you know they you um the roads you drive on um you know historically were kind of built and paid for with the the, the proceeds of the gasoline tax but the the gas tax hasn't kind of covered the cost of maintaining or building roads for for decades now um there's all of this subsidy in the form of kind of free land and i think beginning to reduce some of that can make governments and taxpayers better off um people better off even while sort of just shifting the incentive so that maybe you've you know, you, you, you see an alternative way of getting around, and that's beginning to happen. And if you look, you know, elsewhere, you kind of look abroad, um, I think what you can see, you know, particularly I, for the book, I, I spent some time in Paris and what they've been able to do with cycling in the last few years has been phenomenal. You know, they they put in all of these protected cycle lanes and they, they really accelerated this in response to COVID-19 because they realized, you know, oh, well, people wouldn't be able to ride the kind of the metro and subway anymore in great numbers because of the risk of infection but they couldn't have everybody driving because paris is just too small for the, the car so they suddenly you know tried to encourage people to get on bikes and the amount of people who you know get around on bikes now in paris and not just in the center and like the suburbs as well is it's grown phenomenally it's it's become you know a city but like amsterdam or copenhagen and people can be encouraged to kind of change how they get around really very easily, Often, particularly cycling is one of those things that, you know, an awful lot of Americans, you know, something like a third of Americans regularly go out on bikes, um, you know, as a form of kind of recreation, an awful lot of those people, I think, would be very happy to get to work or to get to school or to the shops, or whatever on their bikes, if they felt safe doing so. Um, and so if you begin to sort of, you know, make that an option available, people can shift very, very quickly. Um, and I, so I, I, yeah, and something. it
0: shouldn't it shouldn't be that expensive to do it because there's not that much infrastructure required to do it, and and you do see that. I was in Copenhagen this summer and uh, Amsterdam, and and uh, there was just a tremendous amount of bike traffic, and you know thousands of people are are you know using their bike down the major thoroughfares. Question is, how do we do that in the U.S.? Uh, we don't exactly have that bike culture the same way or or maybe you're saying we do and and uh what what's the tipping point how do we how do we move from kind of having bikes in our garages that we use occasionally to using them for day-to-day activity
1: so i i think it is happening in the us it's not at the same speed but you know there are places like uh I was in Minneapolis over the summer and they built an incredible network of um, protected bike lanes and people use them. I, I'm not sure as how much they use them in the winter, I'd like to see, but I've told people do so use them in the winter. Uh, but certainly in the summer, extraordinary numbers of people on bicycles um, here in Chicago. The amount of you know people getting around by bike has increased. Enormously, despite the fact that the bike lanes here are still really quite poor. So I think the demand is is there. I think it's it's trickier when you look at somewhere like Los Angeles or Houston, where you know the distances people are travelling tend to tend to be longer and and the roads you know wider and the rest of it. But uh, even in, in LA, I think you know one thing that that's making a huge difference in this is is the rise of electric bikes. um Because an electric bike you can kind of zoom along at you know twenty miles an hour. Um, without putting in so much work and suddenly it turns you know a kind of I always thought that like a normal realistic sort of bike commuters maybe three or four miles but on an electric bike it might be six or seven and, and that you know the vast majority of car trips in the U.S. are less than five miles um so there's There's space even in some of the most kind of sprawling cities. I think for some change there, you know, in quite a quick way. It perhaps won't be as dramatic as it is in Paris. It might be difficult to do that. Although, you know, I think some places like New York City might be able to do that, or Washington DC. But but even Mm -hmm. you know even the Los Angeles as well, I think, can get a lot more people on their bikes and out of their cars. Well, I think you kind of have
0: to subsidize or push people or incentivize people to move in that direction i don't see it happening uh quickly enough and uh, going back to another kind of related point that you had made about people wanting to live in the city but being priced out it, you certainly see that in la and new york where lots of people live out 50 miles from the city and it's and it's because there is no housing stock that's affordable 10 miles from downtown LA, or there's very little housing stock available in that bandwidth. How do you solve for that problem where you can actually bring people back to the central city where they probably many of them would like to live, but they're just they're priced out of it?
1: Well, this is linked to cars as well, because you can build an awful lot more. You know, one of the things that drives nimbyism and is completely rational is is fear that people are going to, you know, newcomers are going to add more traffic and they're going to use up the parking spaces and make it harder for you and your car to get around. And that's 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 not insane that people do do that and and particularly in the way that kind of housing is 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 built with parking spaces it means that everybody there's a default assumption that new new residents will drive but as you know I think it is beginning to happen at least a little in in Los Angeles and and perhaps more elsewhere is that actually if you build this kind of dense housing that is near public transport then not everybody will drive and I, I've had friends in Los Angeles even who who you know didn't kind of drive. Um it's it's possible. I think it's difficult. So basically you, you know you need to build more of that housing and it needs to be done by and you know, it's a lot easier to if you use up some of the land that's currently used for everybody's cars.
0: Oh it's certainly going to be a political challenge to do that, but uh we we have an existential threat in climate change. So I guess we need to make those uh hard choices. You're listening to a climate change, this is Matt Mattern. And I've got Daniel Knowles, Midwest correspondent for The Economist on the show. We'll be right back to talk to him about his upcoming book, Carmageddon. How cars make life worse and what to do about it. You're listening to Climate Change. This is Matt and your host. I've got Daniel Knowles, Midwest correspondent for The Economist and author of Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. Well, uh, Daniel, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about mass transit. And I assume that's one part of the story of getting people out of their cars. And there was a great story on the Ukraine train system in the paper, I can't recall if it was uh, New York Times or Washington Post, that's a country that has 10% of the per capita wealth of the US, but sound like they've got a better functioning rail network, even after being bombed repeatedly by the Russian army. Than the U.S. has why
1: I mean, I've seen a lot of that too with the Ukraine kind of there was some apology sort of saying due to the war trains are only running every six minutes and sort of people in Chicago are going God we hope we wish we had every six minutes um, I think you know it's a it's a it's a matter of choice um, uh, like U.S. public transport systems even in the cities that most depend on them like New York have just not been invested in to the level that they they should be for for decades and and. And it's partly due to that. It's partly due to a bunch of other very complicated factors. Public transport investment has become very expensive and difficult to do in the US, but it's a sort of chicken and egg problem. Um, uh, there's, I think the biggest problem is actually, essentially, to do with land and and, and planning, you know, this is a, a country with very sort of divided government, um, or very fragmented government, lot, one big federal government and lots of cities and counties and states all sort of overlapping and, and to do public transport well, you need a lot of coordination, you need to kind of to make it sort of functional, it's not, it's not really enough to just build a train line, you also need to make sure that like you know that that stuff is built along the stations so that people can get off the train and immediately be somewhere that they they need to be um and what tends to happen in the us even you know I, I think of la um in this in particular because la built some great um kind of new subway lines in recent years but if you don't coordinate it with the land use so that when you get out of the train station you're just surrounded by kind of parking lots and you know single family homes and it's you know it's long walk from the station to get anywhere then uh the public transport system won't work very well and then it will be hard to sustain it will be hard to kind of run it with the frequency that um that people take for granted elsewhere basically for good public transport you need density you need people to be living you know and and businesses to be clustered densely around the stations and american cities sort of mostly and and there are exceptions but but don't have enough of that density um which makes it very kind of difficult to make public transport work uh unless you think of ways of increasing that that density um and the added problem to that is in the us you know this is a very rich country that's had you know 100 years really of kind of sprawling out so a lot of the places where you would kind of want to build new, where well, you could build new density. Well, it's pretty hard to do because there's already people there, built, all kind of built around car-centric suburbs. So you're having to learn to to build up in Europe. I think uh, you know combination of the car coming later and um, uh, cities being a bit poorer, and then uh, you know also kind of older cities meant that a lot of neighborhoods grew up around public transport. Um, sort of in the first place before the car come along and that that's true of some parts of the US and it's true of Chicago for example Um, but it's it's not true of very large parts of it unfortunately and 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 kind of getting getting the genie back in the box is definitely harder than sort of doing it differently first first time around so are cars and
0: car ownership becoming a political dividing line and uh, how do we work around this (laughs)
1: Um, So that is something that I'm, you know, fascinated by. And I think if you look at, uh, you know, it's not only in the US, but if you, you know, obviously kind of, you know, Republicans are are many times more likely to own a pickup truck, for example, whereas Democrats are still on balance, more likely to own a uh, an electric car and in general you know the democratic parts of this country are the places you know the the center of cities where you know people probably in most parts of this country still own a car but they might not own two or they might drive it less they may rely on it less they may be you know more likely to use public transport whereas the sort of heart of uh kind of you know, of of the right is is obviously, you know, the the deep outer suburbs and and the countryside where people have a lot of vehicles and rely on them. And I think there's a sort of, you know, it's a real challenge changing incentives. If you want to encourage people to live denser, um, you know, kind of more sustainable, less energy intensive lives, well, you are basically raising taxes and, and raising the cost of living on that lifestyle, which, uh, which is the opposite to make the lifestyle that's more sustainable that um, cheaper, and and that you know I, I think. You know unfortunately one one thing that we're going to see as far as we haven't seen it already is basically the emergence of the kind of driver lobby um and you know in the uk in particular um in, you know similar similar to the us in many ways in terms of politics here you know, the conservatives have seen their sort of political support um you know actually one of the, the best predictors of, of, of where has sort of turned conservative um, or turn conservative in the last election, was, you know, where do people drive? Who owns cars? Car drivers are tend to lean towards conservatives. So there's a sort of difficulty that when you have invested in owning a car and in a, owning a house um, in the sort of car-dependent neighborhood, um, well, you've invested in it, so you don't really want that taken away from you. So I think that's going to be the big challenge.
0: Maybe uh, one way to deal with that is by subsidizing solar rollouts and wind and electric vehicles to the extent that uh, it is seen as a good for the people who are living in less densely populated areas. And uh, and certainly the some of that has begun already in places like Kansas and Iowa produce a tremendous amount of wind energy and probably could produce a fair amount of solar energy too. And somebody who's got land a homeowner who has an acre of land has got a potential of, of having solar a solar array on their property. So maybe you can use those things to our advantage.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's always going to be a part of the, the kind of climate change thing. Obviously, as my sort of car and getting rid of cars obsession. I kind of think that a lot of it can be done without having to make the lives of people in rural areas worse. In fact, in some ways you can sort of take the pressure off rural areas um, if you can get cities to expand and to grow to, you know, not physically, but in terms of the number of people who can live in them, if they become more affordable. Um, well, the kind of pressure on on, you know, in those 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 parts of the country and those particularly those rural areas where, you know, people do rely on their vehicles, um It becomes easier to switch those kind of people remaining onto electric vehicles that are perhaps powered, yeah, as you say, by kind of, you know, even solar on their properties. uh but you know if not in their properties then sort of nearby so i i think it's a combination of all of these factors i i think you know i'd, I'd like i get in my more militant moments i get more you know kind of take away take away their cars um to make them i don't really think easy. that may but, work but but, uh, but i i think you can't do that no you have to bring people around
0: let me ask you in terms of the carb standards of increasing fuel efficiency. Uh, Is that uh, something we should really be working on now? Or is the internal combustion engine essentially dead and uh, it doesn't make a huge difference whether we increase fuel efficiency standards for those uh, remaining internal combustion engines?
1: Oh, I mean, now that's a very good question. I think that kind of, um, you know, American cars are generally considerably less fuel efficient than the cars people drive in Europe. They're a lot heavier. Um, and I think one of, ironically, one of the um, things that has sort of undermined the rollout of electric cars in this country so far is fuel efficiency um, standards in a kind of slightly perverse way, because basically, um, you know, car manufacturers target a, a what's called a fleet-wide average fuel efficiency, and that that's raised, but they can, for every electric car that they sell, uh, or they can buy the permits from an electric car seller like Tesla, um, they can effectively sell a less fuel efficient car um, to balance it out so that the, the kind of fleet wide average is, is still there. So um, so as electric cars kind of grow um, more and more of the kind of total sold, the fuel efficiency standards as they work at the moment will kind of begin to matter less. Um, and I think there's a case for raising them, you know, either either raising the the sort of mile per gallon kind of target you know quite significantly which joe biden did somewhat uh, raise it reverse what, what what um um what donald trump had done but but i i think we kind of need to think about it slightly differently and we really need to think about um how you know uh, how people drive these cars and where and um and whether we can reduce particularly those kind of shorter trips, all those say, very long road trips, you know, by having alternatives that are are less polluted. We need to make alternatives available to the car. Um, and then what cars, you know, what what trips are left, which, you know, might realistically will probably still be an awful lot more than I would like. Yeah, we need to have more fuel efficient cars. And, and the car industry has really been very big on kind of selling, you know, larger and larger trucks um you know pickup trucks and and suvs that have been less fuel efficient and i think we need to find a way of encouraging them to sell smaller more efficient cars again
0: well that would be that would be great uh, we need uh, so much change and uh, that is that is a substantial one that people who are buying those uh you know should not be essentially subsidized by those who are buying electric vehicles um so uh It's been a fascinating conversation. Daniel Knowles, Midwest correspondent for The Economist, author of Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, It was great having you.
1: It's been a delight. Thank you ever so much for having me on.
0: Well, everybody tune in next week. Uh, Have a great week and uh, we'll talk soon.